I asked to mention also that group three is in charge of the holiday party, so today when group three meets, there'll be some discussion about uh, some details for the holiday party too. So if you're in group three, please, uh, if you possibly can, plan to be here, uh, not only to sign cards, but also to have some discussion about the uh, holiday party uh, plans. It's good to see Bobby again. When he's up here uh, with that coat on and this background, I lose him altogether. Do you know what I'm saying? That'd give you a little hard time. <laughs> he's color coordinated today. That's a beautiful jacket, brother. Beautiful singing. We appreciate uh, very much your participation. I know Bobby does as he leads us and our other song leaders because singing is such a vital part of our uh, worship uh, to God. And we appreciate, Bobby, and these men who direct our minds in song. And we encourage you to be thinking, too, about uh, the upcoming singing workshop in January. It'll be here before we know it with Bert Jones, who will be preaching uh, on Sunday morning and teaching the Bible class. I've heard those lessons uh, in the past. They are outstanding on the subject of authority in Bible class. And then why we do not use instrumental music in our worship in the worship hour that Sunday morning of our, uh, of our uh, workshop. And then that Sunday night, he begins uh, to work with the congregation uh, with our singing and has some time for song leaders as well who, who, um, uh, who want to uh, participate in that. It's a wonderful, wonderful workshop. I've been, uh, been in more than one of them, and I always benefit uh, from being there. So we look forward to uh, to that time and our other events that are uh, coming up uh, as well. Our Ladies' Day on March 29th and, uh, and then our gospel meeting with uh, Scott Harp uh, in the third week of uh, April also. So we're drawing near to uh, the end of another calendar uh, year. And uh, as we do, I really can't think of a more appropriate subject than, than the subject of of growth. We've been involved, as you well know if you've been here, uh, in a series of lessons, uh, the New Testament Christian, based upon the theme of last year's Memphis School of Preaching lectureship. The New Testament Christian, various subjects that were dealt with in that excellent lectureship, and we've been picking out some of those and highlighting them. And one of them, uh, with which we would like to deal not only today, but um, uh, as a foundation for some other discussion, as we conclude this series, is uh, the New Testament Christian never stops growing. Patrick Harper, a brother whom I do not know personally, uh, dealt with that subject and his manuscript, which I have read, was excellent. Uh, the New Testament Christian never stops growing. And as I thought about this uh, topic and realized that some of the other topics at that lectureship included uh, the New Testament Christian is a joyful person, something that I had planned to uh, uh, deal with, and uh, grace was dealt with as Glenn Colley dealt with the subject of the New Testament Christian, Christian trusts the grace of God. I thought we would approach the remaining uh, lessons in this series by looking at a foundational principle of growth, but in looking at 1 Peter, to look at 12 areas in which that growth should occur not going to deal with all 12 of those uh, today, uh, obviously, but we're going to uh, lay the foundation for uh, the future lessons, uh, however many they may ultimately turn out to be, by, uh, by looking at 12, 12 things that are mentioned in 1 Peter in which growth should occur because 
Peter deals a great deal with growth. And the key passage is, of course, 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. But the 12 things with which we will deal will be these. Grace. We should grow in grace. And in peace and hope and faith and love and joy. In holiness, in fear, the right kind of fear. In good works, in patience, in knowledge, and in humility. I believe those are quite... Uh, quite encompassing in terms of the areas that uh, are so vitally important to our lives as Christians, if indeed we're going to be pleasing to God. And so, we will conclude the series uh, along these lines. And as I said, of course, the key passage that becomes the basis for this study is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and two, a passage with which I am sure you are familiar, therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. The American Standard Translation adds unto salvation, that you may grow thereby unto salvation, that is unto ultimate final salvation in heaven. He's writing to those who've been saved initially from their sins, but this is a growth process in which we must be engaged in order to ultimately enjoy the final and eternal salvation for which all of us, I'm sure, here have interest. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here this morning. How will we achieve that final salvation? The key is growth. Who would affirm who would affirm that an individual can believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, act upon that faith by repenting of one's sins, confess sweetly the name of Christ as Lord and Savior, and then be buried in baptism for the forgiveness of sins, to rise to sit in newness of life. That's not what the passage teaches. It's rise to walk in newness of life. Who would affirm then that once one has become a Christian, that's it. There's nothing else that is um, incumbent upon him or her in order to ultimately be assured of salvation. Well, clearly, the scriptures teach otherwise. We do understand, tragically, the reality that with some who are baptized into Christ, they quickly fall away. Some maybe are immersed in water and never darken the doors of a church building thereafter. And I'm sure all of us have been familiar with that kind of situation or where Christianity was very short-lived in terms of the faithfulness of those individuals. What's the key? What is the key that will enable a child of God who has become a child of God, a Christian, to remain a Christian, pleasing to God, and ultimately to enjoy that eternal salvation. The key is growth. Growth, then, is demanded, first of all. It is demanded. It comes by degrees, as we shall see. But it also requires diligence on the part of every child of God in order to please God by growing as one should. And the Christian never stops growing. You know, we can all think of men whom we have loved and respected who were giants in the faith, as the expression 
goes, who've gone on to their reward. We can think of individuals like Franklin Camp. We can think of individuals like Guy N. Woods. And the names could be, uh, could be given uh, almost endlessly, thankfully, for such men who have had such a powerful influence in the lives of, of so many people. But would any one of those who have had that kind of influence, would they have, have ever said to anyone else or thought to themselves, I have arrived. Don't need to keep growing. I am grown. <laughs> I am grown. No, they would affirm that they had matured and that they had grown to a point of, of stability that, that helped to ensure that nothing was going to overthrow their faith because of the process to which they had applied themselves, that growth process. But every one of those men for whom we have the deepest respect and had the deepest respect would have all said, I never stop growing, never stop growing. And yet there is a state of stability that we must reach. We'll talk about that in just a moment as we talk about growth by degrees. But first of all, we need to appreciate, as the scripture makes abundantly clear, that growth is demanded by God. It is not desired by God and left to us as an option. You could either grow or not grow and God will be equally pleased either way. No, growth is demanded by God. In 2 Peter, Peter's second epistle, he has something to say about it in verse 18 of chapter 3. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he adds, to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. I realize that's the closing statement in the epistle, but it comes right after the admonition, the demand, if you will, that Peter makes upon Christians to grow. Grow. Go back to verse 17 of 2 Peter 3, and he says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. How is it that you can keep from falling from your own steadfastness? How is it that you can keep from being led away with the error of the wicked? Peter tells you, but, here's what you do, but grow. Don't fall away, but grow in the grace, the favor, and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And grace is, grace is that attribute about which we'll speak first when we come to the list of those 12 things we're going to talk about in relation to the imperative nature of growth in respect to all of these things. But grow. Grow is a demand. As newborn babes, back to verse 2 of 1 Peter 2, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Peter's not giving us an option. He's issuing a command, a demand that we grow. But, verse 2, which we've just read, also leads us to the degree aspect of growth. Growth, growth does not occur all overnight from being a babe to being mature. Doesn't happen in the physical realm, does it? Indeed it doesn't. Obviously, growth is a process, a natural process that is nurtured by nutrition, by care, by all of those things that help that physical baby to grow into adolescence and ultimately into manhood or womanhood, into 
adulthood. And that's the way it is with the Christian. We are babes when we are first baptized into Christ. But what if we remain babes? What if we remain babes? Why is it so imperative that this subject of growth be taken to heart by every child of God? Why is it so imperative that we diligently, and we'll talk about the diligence here in a little while, that we apply ourselves to this process? Brother Patrick Harper in his manuscript mentioned that the need for growth is seen from one perspective because of the warfare in which we are engaged as God's people. And who should be involved in that warfare? How many armies have you ever seen, physically speaking, comprised of children? Have you ever seen children's armies? We don't send children to war. They don't serve in the military, children don't. Now we may think that the age is so young now that they are virtually children and they are awfully young. But we don't send babies to war. And we don't send babies to war against Satan. We need Christians who are grown in a sense, but always growing in another sense, because we've got a fight on our hands. And the Bible makes that abundantly clear, that our adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour on the one hand, and then on the other hand, he is slick and subtle, and able to overthrow many through those subtle approaches. False religion. So many things that Satan uses. Therefore, therefore, when we are newborn babes, we dare not stop there. But we are to desire the pure milk of the word that we may grow thereby. And Peter makes it abundantly clear, doesn't he? as to what it is that's going to produce the growth that is absolutely essential to pleasing God and saving our souls. It is the Word. Desire the pure what? Milk of the what? Word. The all-sufficient, all-powerful Word of God. And don't you wish those Hebrew Christians to whom the Hebrews writer wrote those admonitions had understood and appreciated Many of them, the need for growth, as Peter admonished that growth to occur in us. Remember Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 beginning? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who are mature, that is, who are the mature? That is, those who by reason of use, practice, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We talked about church discipline in the Bible class this morning. If indeed we are growing as we should and have grown as we should, should we balk at the idea of loving church discipline being exercised? Of course not. No, we should be supportive because we have applied ourselves to the kind of growth 
that comes through the Word of God so that we understand and appreciate the absolute essentiality of that as well as so many other things in Scripture. But if I remain a babe year in and year out, chances are I will balk at that or other things based upon the fact that I have not matured, have not understood fully, that I never stop growing, but that I can reach a point where my stability is far greater than it once was when I was a babe. I've mentioned this before, talking about degrees of growth. But let me mention it again. Three stages of Christian growth. Please help me. I can help myself. Where I'm afraid, as I've said before, many people stop and think that's it. They're just two. No, they're three. The third is, now let me help you. Let me help you. Babes in Christ are in the please help me stage. They need that encouragement. They need that attention. We need to make sure they don't fall between the cracks, so to speak, that, that we don't lose sight of their need for encouragement in so many ways because they have just come out of the world. And having just come out of the world, chances are the world from which they have exited is going to seek to try to get them back as quickly as possible. They're going to be friends and associates and acquaintances who will say to an individual who's obeyed the gospel, younger or older, what have you done? And then that babe in Christ can tell them what he or she has done. But will they seek to influence the individual to come back into the world? Chances are they will. But it's during those early years that that babe in Christ, if he grows as he or she should, can also have an opportunity to influence them. Which way will it go? Which way will it go? I think the key will be the application of oneself to the growth process. And that brings us to the diligence aspect. Growth is demanded. Growth comes by degree. Peter makes that clear in the passage we are using as our foundational text. But it requires diligence. It has to be by effort, ongoing effort. We cannot, we cannot let up. We cannot take anything for granted. We cannot be satisfied to stand still, but we must be determined and diligent to continue to move forward in our Christian growth. Now, Peter, in his second epistle, addresses the matter of diligence with the very word itself. Listen to verse 5, beginning of 2 Peter 1, which introduces us to what we normally call the Christian graces. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours, and what? And abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten 
that he was cleansed from his old sins. Now listen to verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. There's the promise that Peter gives. Diligence. Being diligent in adding the Christian graces. Being diligent in your growth in all of these areas and the areas about which we'll speak in coming lessons. All of this brings about stability that prevents stumbling and leads to this, verse 11. Of 2 Peter 1, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He then adds, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. And that could be said about so many who are here this morning. You know these things. You're established in the present truth. But Peter said, an apostle said, I'm not going to hesitate to remind you of these things, nor am I. Though not an apostle, though not a Peter by any stretch of the imagination, as a preacher of the gospel, as a fellow Christian. We should remind each other and encourage each other that we have to apply ourselves diligently to these things because when we fail to do that, when we rest on our laurels, as it were, when we lose sight of the absolute imperative of growth and that it is an ongoing, never-ending imperative, then we're susceptible to Satan. And ultimately, ultimately, it will take its toll. But growth in the areas that we have briefly outlined that we'll study a little bit more in detail, growth in these areas will bring about a stability along with a joy about which we'll speak as well and a peace that surpasses understanding about which we'll speak in this series as well, that no one can take away, and that we will appreciate to the fullest an appreciation for that joy and peace and all these other wonderful attributes that come from diligent application to growth that so many never realize. Yes, not just those outside the kingdom. They never realize it because they haven't come into the kingdom. But even in the kingdom, the church, many times, so many, do not lay hold, if you will, of the wonderful things that God has prepared for those who love him and who apply themselves to diligent growth in the kingdom. As newborn babes, Desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. In just the last few minutes that we have this morning, let's look at the first of these, and that is grace. When you go back to the first epistle of Peter, some of these we'll be looking at will be seen prior to our key passage in 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, and then others will follow after that statement, near the end of the epistle. But as we read First Peter, 
an epistle that we have studied in an expository series uh, here at White Oak in times past. The Apostle Peter uses a, an expression that we see so characteristically used by Paul. And that's seen in verse 2, the latter part of it. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. I can't think of a better way to close our thoughts this morning than to think for just a few moments about growing in grace. Growing in grace. What is grace? It is favor. Favor. It is uh, unmerited favor, as it is often described as the Bible uh, definition, and that's an accurate definition because there's no way for us to earn the favor of God. We can't do we can't do enough to ultimately say to God, you have to extend your grace to me because I've done this, this, and this, and therefore it's really your duty to extend it to me. Well, if we ever reach that point, it would negate the idea of grace in the first place, wouldn't it? Because grace is favor that is unmerited by us, but that God extends to us nonetheless. But, but as we've studied in times past, does that mean that because we cannot earn God's grace or merit His grace, that we just sit back and do nothing and expect God to extend His grace to us on that basis? Some think so, tragically. And yet, the Bible teaches nothing of the sort. And we've looked at Genesis 6 and verse 8, the first usage of grace in Scripture in Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And as Brother Camp used to say, Brother Franklin Camp, when you see something used for the first time, you better camp out there a little bit because um, you can learn something about a principle that you're likely going to see unchanged throughout Scripture. And that's certainly true here. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But then verse 9 reads, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Noah received the grace of God because he was sinless? No. Because he was faithful to God? Yes. God extended his grace to Noah and his family because of faithfulness, not sinlessness, but faithfulness. And so the first time we see the word grace used in Scripture, we understand or should understand that grace is not extended without something on our part being done to accept or appropriate that grace. What is it? Obedience to God. Sinlessness? Perfection? Sinless perfection? No. Obedience? Yes. After Noah received grace in the eyes of the Lord, Noah sinned, obviously. We read in Genesis 9 about Noah. He planted a vineyard, became drunk with the wine. And we know what happened after that. Noah was a frail human being. But Noah was also one who was faithful to God. He obviously repented of sins. He obviously prayed to God, offered to God that which God required, and he walked with God. The Scripture says he did. That principle has never changed. Only the particulars have changed. We don't build arcs today to show that we are faithful to God. But we are buried in baptism for the remission of sins to show that we have faith in God. And unless we're willing to do that, we are denying our faith in God. And the scriptures make that abundantly clear. Oh, yes, I must believe before I'm baptized. Jesus said that. He who believes and 
is baptized will be saved. I must repent indeed before I'm baptized for baptism to do me any good because Jesus said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all in like manner perish, Luke 13, 3, and again at verse 5. I know that I need to sweeten my lips with the confession that Jesus is the Christ and that I need to be committed to live out that confession after my obedience is completed to him, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. Deny me and I'll deny you. But yes, baptism is that final culminating act of obedient faith in which I must be engaged in order to accept or appropriate or receive the grace of God, the favor of God. Just as Noah had to build that ark, just as God said build it, I must obey the plan of salvation just as God through Jesus Christ and his inspired writers, inspired to write it by the Holy Spirit himself, have told me I must do. And so the principle has never changed. Salvation is by grace through obedient faith. The particulars are different today than they were in Noah's day. But just as Brother Camp would often say, first time you see that word used, camp out there a little bit, see the principle that has never changed, nor will it ever change. Oh, I do wish that so many who work so hard to deny the essentiality of complete obedience to Christ in baptism for the remission of sins would see and appreciate that the grace of God did come to all appeared to all, but as Paul wrote in Titus 2.11, that grace that has appeared to all men came teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, as the New King James renders it. And indeed, it is abundantly clear in Peter's own writings, in this very same epistle that we're looking at these attributes from which we're seeing these, that the grace of God must be appropriated by obedience. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace of that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if someone just stopped right there, they might try to lift that passage out of its context and say, there's grace alone. There's salvation by grace alone. That's telling a child of God, you don't have to grow. Why are we talking about growth? All you have to do as a child of God is to rest your hope fully upon grace. And it's grace alone that will ultimately save you. That'd be unfair with the scriptures. Because after saying that we should rest our hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, he goes on, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Who is it that can rest his or her gra uh, hope upon the grace of that is to be brought? Who is it that can rest one's hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought when Jesus comes again? The obedient child. The obedient child. Not the sinlessly perfect child, but the obedient child who is walking in the light as God is in the light. 
who is being cleansed continually by the blood of Christ as he keeps up that walk and recognizes his frailties, his shortcomings, and his sins, and prays to the throne of heaven regularly for forgiveness of those sins. Oh, what peace comes from being able to rest one's hope fully upon the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Does that describe you this morning? If not, it can. It can. Just as soon as you will manifest your belief in Christ by repenting of your sins, confessing Him to be the Christ, and by being buried in baptism for the remission of sins. And then you'll rise to walk, not sit, but walk in newness of life, to grow, because it's demanded. It comes by degrees as you desire the pure milk of the Word. And it takes diligence to complete the process. And the process ends when you die or when the Lord comes again. That's when we stop growing and start glorying in that eternal abode. If you need to come home to your first love, as one who's wandered, needs to repent of sin that's been committed in a public way, to restore your soul and your influence, please be assured that we'll welcome you with open arms and pray with you and for you and that God himself is eager to receive you if you'll come home to him. As we stand to sing, will you come?